But along the way, I think there became this common misunderstanding that I, as a medical student, had as well that that women's health was really reduced to our breasts and our reproductive organs, like bikini medicine, so to speak. But we know that we are different from men head to toe. There are different female predominant diseases. And I felt that by walking through a women's body, by organ system and showing all the ways we've been left behind and neglected might really highlight what happens when we show up at the doctor's office today. What is this legacy that we've inherited? How do we change that story and hopefully change it for the better for ourselves? Hey friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of Design a Life You Love, and together we're going to be doing just that. Each week I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. This is a must listen for every woman. We are talking with Dr. Elizabeth Komen, the author of All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. Dr. Komen has dedicated her medical career to saving the lives of women. An award-winning, internationally sought-after clinician and physician scientist, Dr. Komen works as a medical oncologist with a specialty in breast cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and is an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. She earned her BA in the history of science from Harvard College and her MD from Harvard Medical School, and then completed her residency in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital and her fellowship in oncology at Memorial Sloan Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Coleman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, congrats on your book. I laughed because you made some of it funny when it wasn't. Um, I cried and I felt angry a lot, <laughs> but mostly Babe. empowered. Yes, you must have with all the research you did. I just can't even imagine. It was a lot of work, but a, a labor of love. Yeah. Why did you choose to write this book now? And who are you hoping it gets in the hands of? So as you said, I'm a breast oncologist. I've cared for thousands of women over the course of my career. I've had one job and that's caring for women. And also I'm passionate about the history of medicine and understanding that medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum, that it's inextricably linked to culture, history, religion, politics. And in that, I've always been drawn to the experience of women with illness and been privy to really heartbreaking, countless, endless stories of shame and blame and gaslighting and women being misunderstood or misdiagnosed I've been a caregiver to women in my family. I've been a patient myself. And I reached a point in my life where I said, you know, the time is now. There were enough experiences in my life where I felt really personally compelled to do this and, and hopefully, you know, change change the future for the better and be part of a greater mission to have equitable health care for all. 
this book is phenomenal. I just can't even <laughs> say I don't. There's so much gratitude that I have for you for writing it. Um, I'm obviously not in the medical field, but for those who are, I still think it's going to be eye-opening because I mean the history there is just you organize it by the eleven organ systems, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but I'm grateful to you. I'm really grateful to you for what you've done. I feel very empowered after reading your book. I'm grateful that you decided to read it. And the the choice to really organize it by the 11 organ systems was because I, I wanted some structure. I wanted to relate to the lay public. How does how does the modern medical doctor learn about physiology and presumably learn about women's bodies? And we know that at the rise of the 19th century, when medicine became specialized, because remember germ theory, wearing gloves, antiseptics, antibiotics, this is all new. So much of laboratory science is really only in the last, you know, hundred years or so. But with the rise of medical specialization, the body became fragmented into these different specialties as we know them today, which is in some measure why we're still chasing this holistic care. But along the way, I think there became this common misunderstanding that I, as a medical student, had as well that that women's health was really reduced to our breasts and our reproductive organs, like bikini medicine, so to speak. But we know that we are different from men head to toe. There are different female predominant diseases. And I felt that by walking through a women's body by organ system and showing all the ways we've been left behind and neglected might really highlight what happens when we show up at the doctor's office today. What is this legacy that we've inherited? How do we change that story and hopefully change it for the better for ourselves? Absolutely. And I've had so many doctors come on. I've not asked them about gaslighting in the medical system, but inevitably they bring it up. They yeah. just have brought it up just organically through the conversation and why they're doing what they're doing and how they want to change it. And I have a lot of respect for the, the, the medical institution. Of course you do. This is what you do. But I think that it's clearly flawed. And then understanding the history was just like a light went on in my head. I was like, oh, Gosh, yeah. some of this is so deeply ingrained. So deeply ingrained. And I've drank that Kool-Aid too. Part of this was understanding that I believe that history is almost collective therapy for all of us. We get to go back in time to the things that we can't change, the traumas that we can't fix, but we can use them to empower us to say, what, what are the stories that we've told ourselves? Where have we gone misled? What what are the biases that maybe we've inherited ourselves, not just yes. the doctor in front of us, but what are the stories that we tell ourselves? One of the examples that I gave in the hormone hangover chapter was how in medical school, I was crying with the mother of a patient who was really traumatically injured in an accident. And I had a surgical resident tell me that I really could never be a surgeon because I was crying with a patient and I was kind of scrambling to explain myself. And I said, oh, it's, you know, I just have all this estrogen and that's the problem. And there I was as a medical student kind of apologizing for being human and blaming it on my estrogen. I, I'm no better than some 1850s doctor talking about how we should remove <laughs> ovaries because that's what makes us all crazy. There's nothing wrong with crying with the patient of course. or the mother because their child may be dying, but yet I shamed myself. And a lot of this was about how do I become a better doctor? How do I listen? And, and again, be part of a greater mission to improve healthcare. Absolutely. Well, let's start with your dedication because <laughs> I think a lot of thought goes into this and you wrote for my pearls past present, and future. Tell us about your pearls. I'm wearing pearls today for you. 
speaking of normalizing, <laughs> I really went for it there. I mean, I know it's in my book, but um, so I had a great grandmother, Pearl, who died in a pogrom as a result of, of violence, sexual violence and trauma thereafter from that. My grandmother escaped to this country as an orphan and had uh, two daughters and two boys. One daughter was named Pearl. She was my aunt. She was like a second mother to me and had no children of her own, always wanted to go to medical school, but culture, society, her lifestyle would not allow that. It was very complicated. My mother's middle name is also related to the origin of the word Pearl. And then I named my daughter Pearl. And here's a picture of my aunt Pearl, who was a feminist. Love it. Look at her. She's so cool. Yeah. So this was on the cover of the New York Times when (gasps) she was marching down Fifth Avenue for the Women's Equality March. Uh, So there is this legacy of women in my family trying to actualize their empowerment and living in a world where history, culture, religion would not allow that. And I'm hoping that I can be some part of the piece of moving the needle for my daughter and the next generation to to have women feel more empowered in their bodies. This book is a way for me to access that story through medicine because that's what I know. But it's really part of a larger narrative about really listening to women in society, giving them the agency and power that they deserve to be equal members. I I, I got uh, goosebumps when you were talking. And this is part of your legacy, not just for your daughter, Pearl, but for my daughter, all the women listening, all their daughters. And it makes me hopeful and I'm grateful. I'm going to read a piece from your book that actually made me cry. <laughs> I literally was in the introduction. I'm like, I'm not even in the first chapter. And I'm like, are we going to cry together? Uh, you, we might, we might, but it was about your um, patient. Here we go. Uh, here we go. Your patient, Alan, who was dying of cancer. And you wrote, in those first moments after I tell a patient she has cancer, no matter who she is, her responses almost invariably follow the same trajectory. Am I going to die? Why did this happen to me? I'm so sorry for sweating. Yeah. And then you go on to say, no other illness stokes our fears the way that cancer does. And the women I see in my practice every day are invariably frightened of suffering, of dying, of living in remission for years only to have their cancer occur. But the emotion I encounter most in the examination room, more potent and insidious than fear, is shame. And on the next page, you say, the women who apologize to me for being sick are part of a medical legacy passed down over hundreds of years and still visible today. It makes me choke up because... I see this. I see it in myself and in friends and in your the the stories you told. Gosh. Yes. Well, it was interesting. The, yes. The level of apologizing. And if you get to the conclusion, I'll tell you the story of my apologizing. Even after yes. writing a full book and feeling empowered, there I was in the hospital apologizing for being in pain. <laughs> if I'm apologizing after writing this book, after caring for women, where does that leave the average woman in all of this with less resources, who's not studying the history of medicine and women's health, who doesn't take care of women all day, every day, and have this on the forefront of their brain? Totally. How far do we have to go? And I hope we get there on the on the you know the speedy train. But um, you know, there was there was a day when I was with a medical student. And when you have a medical student, you always have this like litmus test and you got to really pay attention and make sure, you know, you're teaching them something about the doctor-patient relationship or about biology, cancer. 
And it was for whatever reason that day that I noticed every woman was apologizing to me for swimming. You go to I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's so right. Uh, so when you do a breast exam, people are nervous, right? You put your arm up and everybody's sweating. Of course you're sweating. If you're not sweating, wrong. So um I I I I thought to myself, how have I not noticed that all these women are apologizing to me for sweating? And the next clinic day, I'm like, how many women? It was like 80%. I started like taking notes. How many, what percentage of women were sweating? And it was a crazy number. And then I realized almost every clinic, women apologize to me for something normal, natural. I'm so sorry I didn't shave my armpits. I'm so sorry I didn't shave my legs. What I don't care. So sorry, I'm having a hot flash. Oh yeah, we gave you medication that's making you menopausal. Of course, you're going to have a hot flash. It's okay. Yeah. But never in my training did I encounter this pervasive, insidious apologizing from men. And I really, really was struck by it and thought, I'm doing it myself. Where does this come from? What stories have we told ourselves or been told or imposed upon that we need? It's time to rewrite that narrative. And you know, a lot of people have asked me recently and brought up questions that really almost divide the sexes and the genders, like men versus women. And it was men that created the system. And it's true. They did, right? We weren't allowed to go to medical school. Midwives were pushed out of the system. But I think really what this is about is feminine spirit. It is not that men can't listen. It's not that we can't nurture empathy. It's that we have not valued these aspects of medicine, these more subtle, ineffable, ephemeral qualities of what it means to nurture and care for somebody that we know what that makes them feel like, but there's no medical billing code for that. So it kind of got pushed out of the system. And how do we pull that back in to how we care and really listen, not just to women, but everybody? And, and that's, again, part of what I hope I accomplish with this book, just a little bit of what are we really talking about? What are we really valuing in medicine? Absolutely. And I read that you ask your patients, what brings you joy? That's yes. beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I think, what are we doing this for, right? Especially when it comes to cancer, everybody wants to survive, survive. Am I going to live? Am I going to live? But cancer really throws into high relief all of our mortality. Yes. It's just, we, no one's coming out of this alive, right? So if we're going to live, how are we going to live a good life? And I'm privileged to have these incredible sacred conversations with patients about what makes them feel good. Because if I'm helping them survive, but not helping them thrive, then they're not actually living. And so many women will tell me how they feel, feel held back in their health, held back in their bodies, held back in their joy. And what's holding them back actually has nothing to do with their cancer, but these other forces in their life, which they may not have had this space to explore, the space to say, this is what I'm afraid of, the doctor-patient relationship to say, I'm really afraid of this, or I have just this one question I've always wanted to ask, but I'm kind of embarrassed, or maybe you think I'm crazy, but I really need to tell you about this. So how do we create that space in medicine? And I, I know it's an imperfect system, but hopefully we can get just a little bit better at it. Absolutely. Well, you, like I said, you're giving me hope. Um, I am going to mention, and my audience is going to be like, oh, Michelle talks about her scoliosis every time there's a doctor on, but I'll tell you why. Oh. I've learned so much. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So I, I wore a back brace for scoliosis. scoliosis. I had moder I have moderate scoliosis because, as you know, the brace contains the curves too, live two curves. I didn't have any you know, malformations or anything, but I remember when I was 10 or 11 being diagnosed and telling the doctor that, you know, this 
brace is so uncomfortable, I can barely breathe. And him saying, well, you're lucky it wasn't whenever, you know, not that long ago where they used to put girls in full body casts. And I was like, and, you know, they'd lie down for six months. And I remember just feeling the terror in my body thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm grateful. But interestingly, I had a doctor comment on an Instagram post I did telling me she wore the brace that I wore. It was called the Milwaukee brace. It went from here. Yeah. And she said that they don't use it anymore because it's, it was determined to cause, cause psychological trauma. And so I'm realizing as an adult woman, as I have these different people talking about nervous system dysregulation, all this stuff, how that actually impacted me. So, and I think stories help everyone. So anyway, I, I was curious to me that you mentioned it in the book, but what I didn't realize, it was probably my uh, obsessive need to masturbate that caused it. And obviously I'm joking, but not no, back then. Let me tell you, masturbation is part of all of our problems, you know, and all, all of us riding our spin bikes, that's clearly why we're riding them, right? <laughs> I will tell you, lots of people ask me what, I mean, I'm going to get on it right now. I mean, I should just be on it all day long. Then then I'll really be thriving. But um <laughs> I will tell you that um, one of the things that really surprised me in researching this book is, my God, how much were these doctors obsessed with female sexual desire, the fear of it, the control of it as the source of all of our ills? I mean, scoliosis, oh, you're a masturbator. That made you lazy. Then you're hunched over. That's why your spine is curved. Okay, thanks. Um, oh, you you have asthma? Like, or the racist tendencies of it. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable. But yet, when we think about these stories that seem so egregious and, oh my God, how could they possibly say this? But then let's fast forward to 2024. Why yes. are we two times more likely to ask men about sexual side effects from a medication in the oncolo- in, in my world yes. or than, than we are women? Why are we so far behind in addressing women's libido and desire? The amount of times, you know, doctors in my field have said, well, there's no world where we would be castrating men and just be saying, okay, go forth into the world. But yet for young women with breast cancer, that's part of their treatment. Essentially, we have to render them menopausal and we're so far behind in figuring out how do we help them with their desire? How do we help them with their body image? How do we help them with all these other side effects that go along with medical um, menopause? But So on the one hand, these stories are shocking and egregious, but I think what's almost worse is to think about how they play out today. Mm. Yeah, but that was a big takeaway. I'm like, what's their obsession? What is this fixation on women? If you look at the history of anatomy and textbooks, so it wasn't really until the Renaissance that there were there was a famous Renaissance anatomist called um, Vesalius, and he wrote... um, this incredible book that he used cadavers to to dissect, but you couldn't really dissect cadavers in the Middle Ages. They were potentially robbing graves, but it wasn't common practice until really the Renaissance and moving forward. But what's really hysterical, and others have written about this as well, is how many times doctors, male doctors, <laughs> claim to find, lost, lose, find again the clitoris. Like, really, ladies, we know where it is. I'm sure that Egyptian women thousands of years ago knew where it was. 
And it's just hysterical how in the medical world it was described or the Gray's Anatomy textbook sometimes even eliminated it as if it doesn't even exist. And then, of course, it wasn't until, you know, only recently that a female urologist actually mapped the full 3D dimensionality of it. And it's not this tiny little thing that we all assume. So much. So So much. much. So much to learn. Um, well, let's go a little bit deeper on this a little bit. So, cause we're, I, I was thinking we'll go a little more in the history, kind of where we're, we are and where we're going, but, um, you write about the history and legacy of women being treated as scapegoats for contagion and how oh. the conflation of three disparate ideas, feminine hygiene, sexual purity, and good health continue to influence the medical system. You're right. <laughs> this, this made me laugh out loud because <laughs> it was like, at this point, I'm like, what is their obsession with women? Um, you wrote, much of the early medical advice on remaining disease-free is addressed to men and breaks down along, along a gendered binary that imagines men as sufferers and women, women as the contaminators. And the source of the con- that contamination, the vagina, of course. I laughed out loud when I read that. But yeah. it's not like funny because of what they did to the women. Like eat it. Yeah. Yeah. What did you say? Oh, they what? They... There's like this metaphors of like the vagina that has teeth that's going to like eat up the penis. Um, no, what's incredible to me is also the history of sexually transmitted diseases in this country. I spent a lot of time looking at the National Library of Medicine videos about medical education and syphilis in particular. Yeah. The number of videos that were kind of like, here's clean Johnny and he's been infected by, you know, dirty Sally Sue versus the dirty Sally Sue, who's just bad from the beginning. But most people don't know about this American plan where there is the ability to incarcerate really women who could be riding on a bus by themselves or a police officer could assume in whatever way that this was a promiscuous woman, she could be incarcerated, falsely imprisoned, checked for syphilis and potentially treated with mercury or arsenic or terrible treatments, have her teeth fall out, become disfigured, from faulty treatments for syphilis that she may not have even had. There were not men being incarcerated to the same degree. It's really a horrific part of medical history. What year was this? What year? Was after World War II? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I think the law wasn't even outlawed until the 70s, probably. I'd have to look back at the exact numbers. But there's a great book on this called The Trials of Nina McCall by Scott Stern, who was a great source for this book that goes through the entire history of this American plan, which was just absolutely horrific, but, but highlights just how much women were blamed as a source of contagion. Think about COVID, though. Who are the ones like responsible for wiping down all the groceries and keeping everybody healthy? This was these were the women. And we are constantly seen as the caregivers in society for our family, for our friends. And in talking to countless female physicians, we are the ones that are expected to listen longer and be the mom consult. That's what everybody refers to as the mom consult for the difficult patient, the patient that needs needs a little bit more attention, needs a little bit more psychological nurturing. Well, we'll make sure to send those patients to the woman because she has that feminine touch. There's Mm. no reason why men can't do that too. This isn't about flooding our system with women, although we should have, you know, a diversity of spirits and souls in our medical system. It's about honoring that everybody can have the capacity to be a good person, to be an empathic person and to be a nurturer. Absolutely. And just to, so women get a little bit more of a visual on this too. You were talking about women spraying their... uh, (laughs) Not just the, oh. the the Lysol, when the Lysol yeah. products came out yeah. back then. Tell us what happened. 
Oh, you're talking about COVID or you're talking about Lysol vaginal douching? Which one? The other the one? The douching. The douching. Oh, God. I was horrified. The whole history of, um, if you Google the ads for Lysol and vaginal hygiene, it, they're real. These ads were real. And they were ran by Lysol with the idea of, you know, she was the jewel of her husband's life, except for one piece of neglect. She didn't douche with Lysol. Unbelievable. Lysol. You're going to lose your husband because you're not putting Lysol into your vagina. Oh my God, what is going on here? Absolute madness. But if you look throughout history about what's been marketed towards women, oh, you're constipated. You know what? That's why you're unattractive. But if you take this special, you know, mineral salt for your constipation, you're going to have your beauty and your glow back. And the kind of interplay of beauty and medicine and your purpose in life is to serve and to either be a vessel for reproduction or to be a beautiful human being is woven throughout medical history, including more recent medical advertising. I literally have to take a deep breath because I'm just thinking about colonics. Yeah. We market colonics to women as if there's some sort of massive intestinal. So so there's a history called (laughs) auto intoxication where doctors would say that the reason why you're suffering from all these ills is that you're literally full of crap, right? And <laughs> more so women than men because women <laughs> suffer constipation more so than men. And so there were doctors like Kellogg, as in Kellogg of cornflakes, yeah. recommending you know 15 enemas a day. And this was going to be your source of vitality. It's so What's scary. Some of these med spas today. Colonics. Wow. Wow. Um, Yeah. Let's talk about bitches be crazy. I like that chapter. Um, You say the normal range of human emotions in women may not result in a a diagnosis diagnosis of hysteria anymore, but it's still being pathologized in contemporary medical settings. Um, And I'll tell you a quick, uh, there was a GYN that came on who confessed on the show how in her residency, she was taught by the docs that she was training under to label women WWs. And when I asked her what that was, she said, whiny women. And my, and my jaw dropped. I was just like, but I also thanked her. I said, thanks for acknowledging that. Because I think, you know, what we're talking about is women are showing up and often showing up because we have real problems, not being taken seriously. A lot of the GAYNs are saying, you know, the prescriptions for antidepressants are the norm versus really addressing what's going on and and understanding and validating, you know, all the symptoms, the sleeplessness, the joint pains, the hot flashes and all of it. But she was a part of that and she's changed. I mean, she's the hugest advocate now, obviously, you know, in her 50s, but she was part of that. So even the women that you think might understand or be compassionate are also potentially labeling you. Of course, I'm a product of the system. I mean, there are stories in this book where I am embarrassed of how I have treated women and I have misunderstood where they have come from. And I am a product of my own environment. And it was not this always equalizing force in education at all, either towards myself as a woman in as a as a female physician or as a doctor taking care of women. But to your point, I think this specter of the hysterical woman as a ghost infiltrates all of medicine. 
So yes, the diagnosis of hysteria and the hysterical woman is not in the you know diagnostic manual anymore since the 1980s, but we've replaced it with you know anxiety or depression. And that's not to say that there aren't women suffering from real symptoms of anxiety or depression, but women get labeled as anxious. Well, maybe you're anxious because no one's listening to you and no one's diagnosed <laughs> you with autoimmune condition yeah. that they have fatigue and joint pain because you're a new mom or you're working too hard or you're juggling so much and you're multitasking yeah. and maybe diagnosis has been missed or maybe we just haven't studied enough what could actually be going on with you because it occurs 80% more likely in women to have an autoimmune disease than men. And so history hasn't caught up with the research that we should be doing. Um, but if you look throughout history, you know, yes, okay, we're not calling women hysterical and maybe we're not shoving Valium down all these anxious 1970s housewives. But as you said, why are we disproportionately giving women all these antidepressants during menopause when maybe they need a medication for hot flash flashes? Maybe they need hormone replacement therapy. Maybe they just need intravaginal estrogen because the fact that their painful intercourse is making them so depressed because that was actually an important part of their life. And yes. now they don't have it anymore. Yes. So I think we may have changed the language, but we're still singing the same tune. Absolutely. And you have to think, you know, if a woman's going to the doctor, part of the reason she's there is not just for herself. It's knowing that she is a mom or she's a caretaker. You know, she's got a spouse, like she's thinking about everyone else and wants to be well for them sometimes more than even herself. And then she's dismissed. I mean, I heard Oprah say she went to five doctors before they realized her heart palpitations were due to menopause. And that's Oprah, who's gotten access financially, has, you know, access to the best stock. So you think of the everyday woman going in and, and being dismissed, and maybe she is anxious because she's been to three other doctors who have not yeah. taken her seriously. Exactly. Um, it's interesting when you talk about the palpitations. So I spoke with an electrophysiologist, a female electrophysiologist, which of which there are very few. Her name Can is- Can you Dr. say what that is? I don't yes. know what that is, because I read it in your book and I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> to find it. It's a cardiologist that um, looks at the electrical conductivity of the heart, which relates to the rhythm of your heart. And so if you have an arrhythmia, your heart's beating too fast, or you have palpitations, that's something that you see an electrophysiologist for, and they may monitor the rhythm of your heart. Okay. I had no idea about the backstory of the development of the EKG, which measures that rhythm of your heart, how that's basically based on men, how that can fluctuate through hormonal periods of your life, how it can fluctuate during your period. I take care of women. I had no idea about this. No idea. You know, and I didn't train in like the middle of nowhere, right? You you said my bio, like I, I did well in med school. <laughs> I, yeah, I had just no, Harvard. <laughs> I had no idea that Top school. Men, yeah, right? they didn't teach you. So tragic about that. And I it think, uh, or, or when we're speaking of the heart and it's Valentine's Day, that heart disease is the number one killer of women. When we watch movies, when we think about who gets heart attacks, we think it's the overworked older man who's like at the office and clutches his chest. And those symptoms may be very different as they presented a woman, but yet we refer to women's symptoms from our heart attack as atypical. Yeah, we're greater than 50% of the population. These are not atypical symptoms. These are typical symptoms that are found in women. Change the language change the language, do the research on them, right? So you, I read that in your book too. They just haven't been included in any of the studies. Right. So, so if you look at NIH funded trials, it was not until 1993 that women were required to be included in clinical trials. And those are just NIH funded studies, right? Many other types of studies do not have 
an equal distribution of women. And because the idea is, oh, well, we can't work with women because of their menstrual cycles. It's too complicated. But look what happened with the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine, lots of women anecdotally reported that they had menstrual abnormalities. Yeah, and then when I did. Talking about them, that it's like, oh, well, <laughs> you're an anti-vaxxer. Well, maybe you're not an anti-vaxxer, but you're worried about this metric that is an important function for you about how your body is working. It's one of the ways that you know about what's going on with your body. It was never part of an endpoint of the COVID vaccine trials. And yet it, it took a female scientist on a group chat who I interviewed saying, you know, something's not right. Something's not right. Let's put something out on Twitter. And then all these women replied to a study on Twitter and they ended up showing that indeed there were lots of menstrual abnormalities that it did not affect them in the long run. But this would have been very reassuring to women who got the vaccine to know that this might happen and was common. Totally. totally. And I have to give my gynecologist <laughs> credit because I mentioned it to her because I actually had had that reaction huh? to the vaccine yes. and she, she validated it. Had she not, I would have thought it was all in my head. Yeah. It's all in your head. Or, well, let's check you for, you know, and she said, well, if this really wrong with you. Yeah, exactly. Right. And maybe something else. So we talked about the underfunding, under-research, frequently misdiagnosed from, you know, from docs. Um, and I know that you're concerned about the mistrust of the medical system. And you tell the story of a young woman who came in with cancer, whose mom had died, and wasn't treated well within the system. Um, she wasn't from the United States, so I imagine her mom had an accent and maybe that kind of factored into some of the stuff. I don't know. Heartbreaking story, but talk to us about this because I I think that is the direction we're heading more than ever now, this mistrust. There's so much mistrust and, and I honestly, I identify with it. Our healthcare system is uh, in large part broken. And I believe in, in large part because of third-party players that have nothing to do with the doctor-patient relationship. Despite a lot of the maligning of doctors and nurses in the healthcare system, these are people that sacrifice much of their life before they ever even have a paycheck, mm. right? Most doctors don't even sure. have a job and end up with medical debt until their 30s, right? People envision that doctors are, you know, uber wealthy and sure. many end up with $300,000 in debt and don't have a real job till they're in their 30s because they have sacrificed so much of their life because they care. Mm. There is all this moral injury that goes into our healthcare system because in many instances, depending on where and how they practice, they may be asked to see patients in very quick intervals, 10, 15, 20 minute intervals. You can't predict what somebody's going to come in and want to talk to you about. And so there is this rush, there is this, this, these, the albatross of the electronical medical record, there's the albatross of insurance companies and prior authorizations. Your doctor may spend hours or people on her team or his or her team may spend hours and hours trying to get prior authorization for a drug or an imaging test that they believe is in your best interest. And they are fighting with someone not even related to your exam room and has never even met your patient before. Wow. Forces that really impact the doctor-patient relationship. Hospital administration has risen by thousands of percent. We don't need more hospital administration. We need more boots on the ground. And I think that's a huge problem in our healthcare system today that has really um, gotten in the way of the sacred doctor-patient relationship or nurse-patient relationship, whatever that relationship may be. Um, and I'm very, I'm very concerned about that. And in that, people are looking for validation. They're looking to be heard. And sometimes that means going to that snake oil salesman 
or the person that says, your doctor doesn't care about you, but I do. You've been rushed in your appointment, but I'm going to spend some time with you. And when I spend this time with you, I'm also going to charge you $10,000 for this cure for cancer that they've been hiding. Let me tell you, I hear this a lot in my world, that there's some secret that we're all hiding. I'm not hiding it from my aunt who died from cancer. I'm not hiding it from the young mothers or any of my patients that I wish to God I never had a job again. I would be great as a dermatologist or a sports medicine doctor. I would love to be out of a job. It is not easy being an oncologist. There's no secret that's being kind of hidden. But I understand why there's this distrust in the system, maybe even from people who feel like they've been hurt by the medical system. It's a lot of um, validation for their experience. And I'm not quite sure how we find our way out of it, but it is at first by acknowledging just the trauma that so many people have experienced and just how much they feel that they need a place to be heard. And sometimes that's Amazon and ordering some magic cure that you think you're going to find there. You know, I think of preventative care, like, wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, I, I wanted to ask for a bone density scan and my doctor said, well, you qualify because you only because you're underweight for whatever. I don't know. You're underweight. Like it was one of the risk factors, mm-hmm. yes. but you have to be 65. And I thought, well, why? Where did, who came up with that number? And from what I'm understanding, osteoporosis is a big deal and it happens along with menopause. So it seems like there's some solutions that could really be put into effect on the preventative care side. Yeah. I mean, when you speak about osteoporosis, it's interesting. I've been a dancer, an athlete my whole life, but when it came to exercise, so much of what the messaging, I think I've been told is small is better than strong and nobody wants bulky muscles. Or there was this Pilates class that opened up near me in Manhattan. I was looking at the frequently asked questions. It was like, my God, one of them was like, are you going to get bulky muscles from going to Pilates? No, but why are we so worried about bulky muscles, right? Those muscles are what's going to save your life. They improve your metabolic health. You want an improved muscle to fat ratio. Being skinny fat where you're thin, but you've just got more fat than you have muscle is not any better in some instances than being overweight. We don't talk to women at all about how to strength train, how that is so important for bone density, for flexibility, for the prevention of falls, for the prevention of fractures. And I think that goes along with a leg, a long legacy of how we've really pushed women in a, in a poor direction when it comes to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. We covered a lot. There's so much that women need to pick up the book and understand, but is there anything that you want to make sure that the women listening with take away from the conversation today? Yes. Is that the, the history is indeed tragic and enraging and outrageous But the hope really in highlighting the history is to say, think for yourself, what what are the stories you've been told? What are the stories you tell yourself about your body? Take a big step back and think about what would really it look like for you to live not a perfect life, but a healthier life and more joyful life. How can you partner with your doctor and your friends and your family to achieve that? Is it really carving out some time to the exercise that you like? Is it talking to your doctor about your sexual health? Is it bringing up that one crazy fear that you've always wanted to be reassured about? Go for it. Today's the first day of the rest of your life and you have the opportunity and the, and the time is now. If you're listening to this, you obviously care. Don't be afraid. Step into your voice and step into your body. Thank you. Thank you for your book. Thank you for the work that you're doing, um, both 
with the book and then also obviously treating the patients. The book again is all in her head. The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. Um, Dr. Coleman, what's next? Are you going to just be, you could create a whole curriculum. I don't know. I see. Oh, that would be amazing. I'd love that opportunity. I'd love an opportunity also to, you know, as a mother engage with younger, the younger population about how they can feel empowered in their bodies. Um, I'm not going to stop taking care of women. I'm not going to stop seeing patients, but I'd love to teach more. And I'd love to be part of uh, a broader narrative about how we improve health overall. You're you're doing it. You're doing it. And I'm so grateful to you. And thank you for educating my audience as well. Where should I direct the women listening today to find the book, to find you? DrElizabethColeman.com. You can buy the book anywhere. Please order it. It means a lot to me, but it also signals to the larger publishing community and the world at large that people care about women's health, that it's not just about the right thing to do, but that people are willing to invest in it. And we show when we show that we can invest in women's health, then we improve research, we improve funding, and we improve outcomes for women. Absolutely. And the show notes will have all the links over at thegoodlifecoach.com. On your podcast player, you literally will see the link for Dr. Coleman's book and her website, and you can just go access that today and be sure to share this interview with your friends and pick up a copy of All in Her Head. Thank you, Dr. Coleman. What a pleasure today to be a happy Valentine's Day to be sitting with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.